So now I will introduce Ken's Beverage Corner. And it's actually like, it's good. It's, it, I don't know if you guys got a chance to listen to it. It's, it's, uh, it, it's very servicey. It's basically like, don't drink this stuff or you will die. Uh, but I think he's going to try to serve it to all of us. <laughs> like the Borgias. <laughs> right. I, I, yeah, right. Exactly. I, we're going to, we're, we're, we're going to get like a, a cocktail that's made of activated charcoal, uh, tobacco and, uh, and quinine. Um, he's going to serve it to all of us. Like and we're I said, gonna I, re- all die I really respect the, go ahead. In fact, he's, he, he already did he, he he did this in the future and now he's gone back in the past. Eating he's pre, eating pre and butter sandwiches with Jerry Horn in the, the French forest right now. So. <laughs> Incomprehensibly laughing. Yeah. Hello, everybody. We are back for 
episode 13 of Wrapped in Podcast. We're going to discuss Twin Peaks The Return Part 13, entitled, What Story Is That, Charlie? Uh, <clears throat> with us this week uh, are Kyle King. How are you doing, Kyle? Uh, I am well, and because Ken isn't here to correct me, I am drinking a mixed drink made with overpriced name brand vodka and whatever random vermouth the prop guy picked up at the liquor store, for which I will receive a substantial tax rebate. Excellent. And uh, with us this week is Jeff Fallis. How are you, Jeff? I'll tell you, JR, I, I've not been sleeping nights. I've been vomiting blood. Uh, but things uh, a wrong has been made right, and the sun is shining bright. So things are looking up here. That's great, Jeff. Uh, as, as Kyle noted, Ken is not with us. Uh, he is uh, – uh, if he's with us, he's not on this particular recording, although we are going to insert a pre-recorded bit of Ken's beverage corner that he recorded apparently, supposedly, in France. Uh, we'll, we'll address that later on in the show. The first thing that shows up in this episode is something different. The Rancho Rosa logo for the production company uh, that apparently Lynch and Frost put together for this show and also the name of the neighborhood where uh, – what is it? It's a model house where uh, Dougie uh, was transferred into the Black Lodge and Cooper appeared. Uh, it has a red circle in the logo, but for some reason, when that logo popped up at the beginning of this episode, it's green. I think that's a sign, uh, and, and it's a good catch, by the way. I did not spot that, so good for you for seeing that, JR. Uh, I think it's a sign that we're moving back from the sinister, represented by the red, to the benevolent, the benevolent rather, represented by the green, as the Robins return and the White Lodge strikes back. So I take it as a positive sign. You guys, I think it might be a different color every week. I'm going to have to go back and you know watch all 13 episodes to check this for sure. But I think it's a slightly different color variation mm. each week. It was definitely green sure this that. week. I think it's red most weeks, uh, consistent with the you know Rosa part of the actual name of the of the right. logo. Uh, but it, it, we're not sure. The other thing that happened in this intro and all of the intros uh, sequences, and this was pointed out to us by listener and friend of the show, uh, Ryan Usher. Uh, if you look at the top of the mountain that appears you know, right at the beginning of the intro sequence, it, there is a building, a structure there, uh, and, and a road. Uh, the suspicion is that that may, in fact, be listening post alpha on top of Bloom Pine Mountain, uh, which you know I have a feeling we're going to end up there or somewhere around there uh, by part 18. So that's pretty interesting. This episode begins with a fantastic scene at the Lucky Seven offices. Uh, the Mitchum brothers, uh, Candy and company, and Dougie are doing a Congo dance down the hallway uh, to Batman Bud's office. Uh, the music is completely insane. Uh, it's like a slot machine video game music described in the subtitles as zany, upbeat, percussive <laughs> music. And it sounds like it's got this <coughs> hyperactive drum and bass beat but in fact somebody slowed it down and compared it to unreleased parts of the soundtrack to Twin Peaks it's a, a shuffle jazz beat uh from the original series or maybe the movie or maybe both uh sped up uh, and that's 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 the background of yeah. the, the music it's it's great and I, and I love that the music just seemed to like accompany their conga line wherever they went with no sort of you know like clear source for where it was coming from it it just was was following them it was great. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. Um, so they come into Bud's office to present 
gifts uh, like Magi, three gifts. The first gifts is a box of Monte Cristo, Monte Cristo number two cigars. The second gift is a monogram diamond cufflinks. The third gift are keys to a new BMW convertible uh, to match Dougie's. Uh, and uh, you, as you mentioned before, Brad says a wrong has been made right and the sun is shining bright. Right. <laughs> I lo- I'm not sure any of this is ethical, but go ahead. <laughs> I, I, lo- I loved Candy uh, in this scene, and she had this sort of like barely suppressed kind of glee, and she sort of turned quite naturally happily into a game show hostess as she presented these gifts to Madeline Bud. Uh, and regardless of whether Candy is just sort of naturally blissed out, or if she is, in in fact, uh, the reincarnation of Laura Palmer, which is one of my favorite currently circulating sort of Twin Peaks to return conspiracy theories, she's emerged for me as, as one of the best, weirdest, you know, my fa- one of my most favorite characters in the new season in this kind of great, you know, female counterpart to Dougie's sense of innocent joy and, and spaciness. So I'd... Uh, in praise of Candy in this scene. It was great. Yeah, and she definitely seems to have more on the ball in this scene. I mean, as she goes through, you would expect the way she's been in, in recent episodes that she would confuse these uh, these gifts with one another and, and, and be sort of Lucy-like in her ditziness. But she's got a full command of what each gift is. So she, she, does, she does great work here. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that when, when Bradley says the line that you've both quoted about a wrong being made right and the sun shining bright— I think he's reciting the next two lines of Mike's wake up, don't die, have a slice of cherry pie, woodsman counteracting poem, you know, the BMW is the white of the car, something along those lines. And and this is my indication, you know, for, for Ken, wherever he really is, um, uh, that Bradley Mitchum is season three's first returning Robin. And, and by the way, speaking of Ken, I, I don't believe he's in France. I believe Ken is with Judy and the Ace of Spades symbol from Deputy Hawk's map. And he's just not going to talk about that at all. <laughs> yes, they might. They might be holed up at a hotel in Buenos be, Aires. You never be. Know. Right, or Ken has been reduced into a small copper ball. <laughs> we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to listen to his recorded message and see if there's like a code, like right. you know, like saying SOS, help me out. Yeah. Well, guys, I, I it's about poison. So I think we all need to be worried. Yes. Uh, yes. I, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm interpreting uh, Ken's Beverage Corner as a threat. <laughs> Not a call for help, but uh, in, in fact, a threat. No, no in fact, yes. a threat. So uh, anyway, Anthony is the only person who's not down with the party. He's terrified, embarrassed. It's not clear. He hides behind his desk when he sees the Congo line forming uh, down the hallway at his office. And he ends up calling Duncan Todd, who's extremely pissed. Uh, now Anthony has one day to remedy the situation. Uh, Anthony apparently thought he had two, but uh, Todd, Duncan Todd corrects that uh, problem. And surprise, surprise, Todd calls for Roger, uh, although we don't get to see their exchange this time. We jump from here to the Dougie Jones residence, where Silver Mustang Casino employees, uh, probably in violation of a ton of IRS regulations, are is setting up Sunny Jim's new gym set, uh, courtesy of the Mitchum brothers. And also, uh, the Mitchum brothers have provided Dougie with a new silver BMW convertible. Janie E is just kind of shocked, bewildered, and then really smiley as she gets for the re- for the rest of the time we see her in this episode. And she instructs the workers to put the gym in the backyard. The next scene goes to nighttime where Sonny Jim uh, is swinging around on his gym set 
uh, which is insane. It's got a trampoline. It's got lights. It's got a, you know traditional jungle gym parts. Uh, he's flying around on it. Uh, and in addition to the lights, which kind of look like casino lights around the and on the playset. Let's see. I'm sorry. I completely lost it here. Well, you can understand. You can get uh, distracted by by this cool gym set. Right. No, I was. I am distracted by the cool gym set, uh, <clears throat> and I'm also distracted by the spotlight uh, that is going across the gym set. Which you, you have to imagine that's probably not part of what uh, is included in the set. And and Jeff, I don't want to take your bit, but I also saw when I saw this, like that's a bad sign. We see spotlights usually when Bob is going to kill somebody. Right. Uh, when when really bad stuff is going to happen, we certainly don't want anything to happen uh, that would be bad to poor Sonny Jim. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I was going to go on a brief uh, digression here about the music. Uh, there's this music box like music playing in the background. Uh, we assume perhaps it's part of the playset or maybe just the soundtrack. But the theme, uh, the music is the theme to Swan Lake by Tchaikovsky. And you know, there are definitely some elements to Swan Lake that are worth thinking about here. Uh, you know, the story apparently comes from a, a traditional Russian or Slavic folktale, but there's so many different versions of it and so many different librettos of it. It's hard to summarize it without, you know, just taking one particular instance out of it. The ballet uh, and its musical part written by Tchaikovsky is now considered a classic, but was basically a failure, uh, critical failure when it premiered, um, was not particularly successful. Uh, and there were struggles between Tchaikovsky and other composers who were going to insert their music into the into the performance, the ballet itself, which made me think somewhat about season two of Twin Peaks, where, as we know, David Lynch and Mark Frost at least stepped away from a project that appeared to be floundering and whose direct influence was not so much there. Tchaikovsky had insisted that if there was ever going to be any kind of Swan Lake, his music should be in all of it. Uh, and that's certainly what we've got now with the return of Twin Peaks. In terms of the substance of the ballet, there are a couple things that are worth mentioning. Uh, the protagonist is uh, a Prince Siegfried who happens upon a swan who turns into a woman, uh, a beautiful woman who turns out to be the swan queen Odette. Uh, she and her companion swans are apparently victims of a spell cast by an evil owl-like sorcerer named Von Rothbart. So first of all, we've got an owl-like sorcerer, uh, which puts us directly in the world of the Black Lodge. Uh, and we've got a shining, singular, beautiful woman uh, who is seeking some kind of redemption from being under the clutches of this evil owl-like figure. Uh, <clears throat> he has enchanted her in this lake that was created from the tears of Odette's mother uh, so that they have to turn into swans and that the spell can only be broken if one who has no longer loved swears to love Odette forever. Uh, and uh, yeah, like I said, there are many different versions of the play, but one of the critical elements is that later in the play, a woman who looks like Odette, but is in fact Odile, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correct, uh, who is the uh, this woman Odile is, <clears throat> at least in some versions of the ballet, the black swan, the evil double of Odette, the white swan. So you've got <clears throat> essentially a doppelganger here. 
uh, and she tricks uh, she and you know with the assistance of her father, the evil owl-like wizard von Rothbard, tricks Prince Siegfried into declaring his love for her rather than his true love, uh, the Swan Queen Odette. So, uh, and then ultimately, uh, Siegfried is forced to make some sort of decision after Odette is distraught as at his betrayal, uh, and ultimately, uh, he decides to die along with Odette as they jump into the lake, uh, and then they ascend to heaven together, forever united in love. So, anyway, I wanted to share that with our listeners because I have a feeling that some of those themes. Uh, we've already seen in Twin Peaks, and we may see some more in the rest of the return. Uh, I don't have anything really of substance to add, so I just want to point out that I think Sonny Jim Jones is season three's second returning Robin after uh, Bradley Mitchum. So I, I'm I'm getting a positive vibe from this scene, unlike the two of you, I think. Uh, and the other thing I would add is my other theory is that Ken doesn't really exist, and his appearances on the podcast all took place in an extended Agent Cooper dream sequence. That could definitely uh, be likely scenario. Um, yeah, I, I was gonna. Uh, that was great, Jr. And uh, uh, again, a lot to get out of you know whatever's fifteen or twenty seconds of, of music. Uh, right. but that was great. Uh, but I was really I was fascinated in the kind of you know the the doppelgangers and uh, and, and so forth. Um, I was also going to just say something about um, the seventh heaven uh, mentioned in this scene. Uh, Janie E looks out, says, "Sunny Jim is in seventh heaven." And Dougie kind of, uh, you know, in his his Chauncey Gardner way, mirrors that back to Seventh Heaven or Seventh Heaven. Uh, and, you know, last week we had uh, Dr. Amp talking about the Ninth Circle of Hell. And I talked about kind of, uh, you know, that in Dante's Inferno. Uh, there are also nine spheres in heaven in Dante's Paradiso, the seventh of which is the sphere of Saturn. It's devoted to the contemplatives who practice temperance and restraint. That doesn't really necessarily seem like Dougie's uh, or, or Cooper's bag. They like their their cherry pie and their coffee uh, and so forth and uh, don't exactly practice temperance and restraint and all things. So I think the reference is kind of to the more common uh, notion of, of seventh heaven, which basically means extreme joy, extreme bliss. Uh, and this idea of seventh heaven uh, uh, is derived from the highest level of heaven in Islamic and Talmudic theology, the seventh level, seventh level of heaven, the seventh heaven, uh, consists of a divine light incomprehensible to mortal man. And depending on which you know kind of tradition you look at, Abraham lives there. Sometimes uh, God, the highest angels, uh, reside there. So I thought that was uh, an interesting counterpoint to the ninth circle of hell that Doctor Amp was talking about. Uh, in the last episode. And um, with you, JR, I shared that bit of concern about the spotlight. You know, this looks like a pretty amazing uh, gym set, but as you said, that ominous kind of Lynchian spotlight often seemed to accompany Bob's appearance uh, in the first two seasons of Twin Peaks. It also, to put a more optimistic spin on things, did accompany the giant at times. So for me, most memorably when he appeared on the spotlight on the stage of the roadhouse and it is happening again sequence, right. a, a similar spotlight. Um, Bob's evil. The giant's probably the most benevolent lodge inhabitants, but that spotlight still did make me nervous um, for Sonny Jim. Uh, and one kind of final thing I wanted to mention about this Dougie sequence before we move on to Montana and the farm. Uh, this episode, I'll talk about it later with um, 
some of the scenes at the double R, but it, it kind of, I think, makes clear that uh, at least some of the chronology in the timelines uh, are non-linear and are not taking place in uh, chronological order. Right. And here, the Dougie Jones sequence, we only got one scene of Dougie playing catch uh in the last episode in episode 12 but we're kind of told at the beginning of 13 that uh dougie had been all out all night with the mitchum brothers hadn't come home so that scene of him playing catch couldn't have taken place in this kind of timeline so we'll i'll have more to kind of say about that later on but i did feel that there have been a lot of kind of you know theorizing and people looking at at certain details but i think that sense of non-linear chronology um and maybe a different type of way uh in which the scenes are arranged became clear uh, in this uh, episode. Yeah, thanks for that, Jeff, as well as for bringing up uh, this reference to Seventh Heaven, which is not something that we see in popular culture very often. Yeah, so we're, we are at the farm, previously referenced in Mr. C's conversation with Ray after they broke out of prison. The farm appears to be this compound of uh, hardened criminals. Uh, Mr. C arrives in the Silverado pickup truck that he got from Hutch uh, several episodes ago, uh, and he has give, been given the code by Ray. Uh, his entrance is observed by Ray, as well as the new tough folks that we're seeing for the first time at the farm uh, on some sort of a closed circuit TV with a huge flat screen television where they're all being uh, watched. Ray wants to kill Mr. C. Uh, He failed to do it correctly the first time as observed by uh, Ray's apparent boss, Renzo. And so Renzo tells Ray that he'll let him kill Mr. C, but he wants to have some fun with him first. So Mr. C is directed to take an elevator up to where these men are. He comes out of the elevator uh, and is presented by Renzo and his flunky, whose name is Muddy, uh, the rules of the game. Uh, Mr. C has, and this is repeated by Muddy twice, and I loved it, one chance, every guy gets one chance to arm wrestle Resno, and if he, Renzo rather, and if he wins well, they don't tell him what what happens if he wins, but if he loses, he becomes a member of Renzo's game and Renzo is his boss and he has to do whatever Renzo tells him to do. So uh, Muddy tells Mr. C this is his last chance. If he doesn't leave now, he's got to play and he's going to lose, Muddy implies. But Mr. C wants to Mr. C wants to know what's going to happen if he wins and it's explained that he becomes a boss. But Mr. C doesn't want to be there, anybody's boss. He just wants Ray. 
Yeah, Jr. You you emphasized and you put this in our show notes about how Muddy talks about one chance, and he really stresses that idea of one chance. And and uh, and I think the obvious point uh, bears making it that that clearly the stress that this episode places on the phrase one chance is meant to put us in mind of of Bob's infamous poem from the original series, "One Chance Out Between Two Worlds: Fire Walk with Me," uh, which of course foreshadows the Black Lodge connections that are uh, that are. About about to become apparent and and is particularly underscored by the fact that they're arm wrestling, which calls to mind Mike's arm, its removal, its repeated evolution. So um, a lot of things here that probably we didn't pick up on the first time we viewed it, but that really kind of give us a warning of what's about to happen later in this scene. Yeah, no, and and I was really, when he said one chance, I immediately thought about the poem uh, but what excited me more than anything else is there's some controversy as to whether that word is chance, C-H-A-N-C-E, or chance, C-H-A-N-T-S. Uh, and since I am you know, strongly in the chance, C-H-A-N-C-E camp, I was really pleased to see what appears to be a reference to the poem uh, using uh, the debated word uh, that I favor. Correct. Yeah. For and the I'm text. With you. I'm, I'm absolutely with you. This also plays into, you know, I was thinking about this whole kind of scene at the farm, you know, almost playing out as some sort of like parody of kind of like an action movie or we, we kind of talked about it like a, like a Tarantino Reservoir Dogs kind of scenario here. Um, but also, you know, you get the, the difference between the true evil, uh, the true cosmic evil, I guess, of, uh, of Doppel Cooper and the kind of almost play acting, like I said, action movie kind of version of evil these guys represent. Uh, and I like your theory here because they didn't even get the whole poem one chance out between two worlds firewalk with me. These guys who Doppel Cooper says are in nursery school or kindergarten, all they've learned is one chance. They haven't learned the rest of the poem. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. And, you know, but it's interesting because there's one figure amongst these, you know, tough gang members uh, this guy with with a suit on, with a, with a tie, who looks like uh, an accountant. I love that guy with glasses. Yeah, I mean, like what what the hell is he doing there? And we we notice him in the first grouping, and we'll talk about him when he p- pops up a little bit later. Uh, Mister C, as they walk into the room where the arm wrestling match is going to happen, uh, Renzo punches him in the back of the head uh, and says, "You know what? That's the lesson from the nursery school teacher." Uh, and you know. Mr. C just looks at him and his black eyes burn with rage. Uh, they come in to play the game. Muddy explains the particular rules of this game. And it's, it's a fantastic scene yeah. where one, it's, it's amazing. Once, once they start the arm wrestling, uh, Mr. C just plays with him and lets Resno push his arm down almost to the table. The crowd's going crazy. Ray's completely flipping out because he knows he is absolutely dead. If Mr. C wins this match. And so uh, he keeps saying starting position, starting positions more comfortable, uh, Mr. C says, and just picks up his arm as if they had just started the game. Uh, He does it like three times. And he talks about how it kind of hurts his arm when Resno puts his uh, Renzo puts his hand arm, you know, closer to the table, but then demonstrates for uh, Renzo's benefit what it feels like when his arm is pushed down on the table. Uh, it, it's it's absolutely fantastic. He's he's so cold uh, and he's so, you know, yeah, we're all rooting for him. Uh, I'm not sure and what it, that means, if, but yeah, we were absolutely rooting for him. Sure. If anyone had told me a year ago that 
Twin Peaks to return would have featured one of the greatest arm wrestling sequences in American, you know, film uh, TV since uh, the Sylvester Stallone vehicle from 1987 over the top. I would not have believed you. I would have said you were insane. But lo and behold, Jeff, let's go back to starting positions. It's really much more yeah. comfortable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so finally, uh, Mr. C just slams Resna's arm down. We hear his bones crunch in his arm, and then he stands up and punches him in the face so hard that his like nose goes through the back of his skull. Um, he is he is really really dead. Um, the 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 flunkies, the the punks, uh, the gang members. You know they they're happy to deliver Ray to Mr. C per their agreement. And uh, Mr. C asks for some of their cell phones inexplicably. He doesn't seem to do anything with them. I don't know if he just wants a stock or if he draws energy from them, uh, some sort of Black Lodge electricity uh, thingamajoo. I don't know. Uh, but he ends up interrogating Ray. Yeah, I'm, there's there's this point here. I mean, first of all, I agree with you, JR. This is just a fantastic scene. I love everything about this. And it, and it really makes it clear that uh, even though he may be evil, uh, Doppel Cooper, unlike James Hurley, is just cool. I mean, he, he's one of those guys like, uh, and, and this scene really brings it home. He's, it's like Boyd Crowder in Justified. Yeah, I know he's the bad guy, but in this scene, you can't not root for him. And when he punches Renzo, he punches him and it takes out, clearly takes out one of his eyes, which of course, we've seen happen before with Ruth, with Daria, with Phyllis, and it leaves Renzo bleeding from the nose and mouth like what Audrey saw of Billy in her dream. Uh, and then when the accountant guy that you mentioned, the guy in the suit, asks Mr. C, does he need any money? He says no, and and the guy just goes down the stairs. And Bad Coop's response is consistent with what he's already said before, that he doesn't need things, he wants things. And finally, just one last uh, you know, new theory here. Ken's character was written out of the podcast after he gave a Michael J. Anderson-style interview in which he made wild accusations against JR. That's my new theory for why Ken's not here. <laughs> right now, the interview is available only in French, though. So that's why there's a... Yeah, a, a... I, I, have, I have filed papers under the Hague Convention. I did agree with you, Kyle, that, yeah, the uh, the uh, distinction between want and need obviously is very important to um, uh, Doppel Cooper. And I did wonder if he would have responded the same way to the nebbish accountant character if if the that accountant asked him if he wanted any money instead of whether he needed any money. But, yeah, let's go on to the interrogation of Ray. Yeah. I got a few things to say about that. Yeah, so, so basically, uh, Mr. C wants to know who wanted him dead. And Ray immediately gives up. It is Philip Jeffries. Uh, the Philip Jeffries told Ray that he could get out and stay out if he killed Mr. C first. Uh, Philip uh, said that Mr. C has something inside that they want. Mr. C asked Ray if Jeffries ever mentioned Major Briggs. Ray says no. Ray shows Mr. C an owl ring that he's got in his pocket that he was supposed to put on Mr. C after he killed him. Uh, he tells Mr. C that he got the ring from a guard or somebody wearing a guard uniform right before he broke out of prison, right before uh, Mr. C came to Ray's cell. And Mr. C tells Ray to put on the ring on the ring finger of his left hand. Uh, finally, 
Mr. C tells Ray, you know what I want, which is, of course, the coordinates. Ray kind of tries to deflect and suggest that he'd never give him the right coordinates. He says, I know who you are, and he shouldn't trust what, he, what coordinates he gives. But he ultimately just pulls out a piece of paper, gives it to uh, Mr. C. Uh, Mr. C asks, finally, um, where's Philip Jeffries? And his response is, the Dutchman's. And then Ray starts to say, but it's not a real place. Mr. C puts a several, I think a couple bullets in his head and says that he knows what, what it is. Yeah. One thing I was interested, uh, you know, throughout this whole sequence was that absurdly large, you know, like, uh, you know, I don't know, like, like 15 foot high television, uh, big flat screen TV that all the gangsters are kind of watching all this take place on. Uh, and I felt like that was, you know, sort of, again, shades i think of sam and tracy watching the glass box and i'm also been alerted all these kind of bits of meta commentary by lynch and or frost about sort of electronic surveillance and how inescapable it seems to be in uh contemporary america as well as the act of watching especially watching television being observed uh and, and so forth um so that was you know one thing i was was interested in uh and i guess i was also you know, we get, I guess, in terms of the, uh, you know, uh, the the mythos here, Bad Coop, uh, when he spoke to Jeffries by phone, I believe in Agent 2, Jeffries did say he wanted to be reunited uh, with Bob. Uh, and it seems like, you know, Bad Coop wonder, seems to be concerned that Jeffries is in league with Major Briggs, seems to be on some level, I guess, frightened of, concerned about Major Briggs's kind of presence. Uh, and seems to think that Briggs is one of the people who might be able to stop him. Uh, and he also wants to really know badly where Jeffries actually is. I feel like he doesn't really find out much he doesn't already know from Ray, but um, he does get those coordinates, and he does have a, day, a way to double-check those now with his mole, uh, his or you know our potential uh, double agent, uh, or secret agent, uh, Diane. Um, and, you know, I, I'm... Still holding out hope for a David Bowie cameo as Philip yeah. Jeffries, but I will say that if there is someone imitating Jeffries, it's likely Mike, um, who is trying to get his former killing partner, Bob, back in the Black Lodge where he belongs instead of out um, causing uh, havoc. Uh, another thing I was interested in in this sequence was that we have the Owl Cave Ring appearing uh, again, I think for the first time since episode three when it was put on uh dougie's finger and accompanied him back to um the the black lodge and uh it seems to still be kind of important and a little ambiguous it seems to be serving some sort of a binding function uh you put this ring on and again it's on the left the spiritual finger that gordon cole had identified uh and it happens to dougie it seems to happen to ray here it will take your soul uh, to one of the lodges, probably the Black Lodge. Um, but I was interested in, you know, how Laura put the ring on against Cooper's advice in her dream at the end of Firewalk with Me, and that seemed to to be what pushed, you know, Leland slash Bob over the edge into actually killing her and prevent Bob from possessing her, uh, and it sent her soul to possibly the White Lodge. I think it's it's unclear, and I was. Wondering about, you know, if, if I mean, it does seem like if you put this ring on, it seems to, you know, pretend your, uh, you know, uh, impending death in some way, um, but also seems to, uh, you know, promise you to uh, one of uh, the lodges, um, 
you know, I'm not sure. It, it depends on which one, depending on what you've done. And I was wondering about, you know, maybe it's the intention thing, as Hawk said a few episodes ago. Um, but the, uh, I'm always fascinated whenever the Alcave Ring uh, shows up. And I do wonder if there's more than one or if we have the same one that's kind of sent right. back and forth or, you know, if there, there are several um, floating around. And I, I predict that we will uh, see this again at the end of the series. And I also wonder always if Dream Cooper was giving Laura good or bad advice, you know, better to die, not be possessed by evil inhabiting spirit, better to live, you know, which version of Cooper at what point in his uh, spiritual hotel stay in the uh, uh, lodge uh, was giving Laura this advice. So that's, I think most of what I had to say about, about that, that scene, which was a lot. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting, particularly with relation to Doppel Cooper. Now that we know that uh, Ray was supposed to put the ring on his left ring finger, which of course is reversed on Doppelcooper. So who knows uh, what the reversal of his finger would mean if if he were to be killed while wearing the Owl Cave ring? Because will that will that reverse it and send him to the place that he shouldn't otherwise have gone? You know, would he be bound for the Black Lodge, but then be flipped and sent to the White Lodge, which which seems to me to be what he's trying to get into, and the implication we get from the artist formerly known as the Giant at the very, very beginning when he says it's in our house now. Um, for me, it's it's confirmation. And, and JR, I, I, I give credit to you here because I didn't think you were right on this initially, but Ray's comment about there being something inside Bad Coop uh, that Jeffries wanted seems like pretty solid confirmation that JR was right about, uh, about Part 8, that Amniotic Bob was actually removed from Mr. C uh, by the Woodsman. Now, maybe Philip Jeffries uh, was trying to get to uh, Bob first uh, before the woodsman did, but in any event, it does make it sound like uh, amniotic Bob was removed from Doppelcooper the way Jr. said it was. And you guys both seem more certain about that. Where this actually, this kind of sequence and Ray sort of saying, I think Jr. You said he said you got something inside you that they want. Uh, I almost was gone going back to Ken's point of view on this. If Ken actually does exist, uh, that and he's not a force of deception uh, here to, to throw us off Bob's trail. Uh, but uh, Ken believed that sort of they were putting amniotic Bob back into Mr. C in this, in episode eight. And I actually, you know, what, what Ray was kind of saying here actually pushed me a little bit more towards that point of view. Ray, Ray seems to have failed, you know, pretty obviously in his mission to kill bad coop and to have him put the owl cave ring on his finger after killing him, which would seemingly have sent, uh, Bad Cooper back to his rightful home in the Black Lodge. You can't really blame Ray. Those woodsmen all around are, are terrifying and seem like they were making him, you know, uh, flash in and out of existence. Uh, but I almost wonder if the woodsmen might have been healing Bad Coop's body, removing Amniotic Bob during that process, and then putting Bob back inside. Uh, it's unclear exactly how all this works. Um, Bad Coop seems to have lost none of his strength, his otherworldly mojo. Uh, and w- perhaps we can attribute that to Bob's being with him. Uh, Ray seems to be implying to me that the thing inside Bad Coop is still there. Uh, we could, you know, perhaps parse the grammar here, Jr. But I, uh, for me, I was I was actually a little bit more persuaded uh, towards Ken's point of view that Bob uh, is still with uh, Bad Cooper here. So yeah, yeah. Let's parse that grammar. I'm 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 I'm, I'm prepared to accept that challenge. Okay. Uh, Ray, Ray says specifically, he said you got something inside you that they want. And I interpret that 
as the past tense present. Ray is reporting, is quoting exactly what Philip Jeffrey said, that Mr. C had something inside that Philip Jeffries or his crew or whatever wanted. At the time this was said to Ray, because we don't know that Ray has talked to Philip Jeffries. Well, actually, he did talk to Philip Jeffries. Right. But as here Ray is referring away. to a conversation. Yeah. yeah, here Ray is talking about a conversation about killing Mr. C and why uh, Philip wanted Mr. C dead. And, you know, he said, Ray says, he said, you got something inside you that they want. And I think at the time that this was reported to Ray by Philip Jeffries, it was correct. Mr. C did have Bob inside of him that they wanted. And I think that what we saw uh, with the woodsman is the wood- woodsman interfering interfering with this plan of Philip Jeffries uh, and instead taking Bob. And that's why Ray reports to Philip Jeffries, I think I saw something. Uh, I've got to go look up the quote. Um, in fact, I'm going to go do that right now. Because <laughs> I can edit this out. And don't think you can fool us, Jr. Jeff and I know that you're just Googling more pictures of Janine Turner. (laughs) (laughs) If Bob goes away, I mean, it makes Kyle's brilliant uh, Diane being possessed uh, theory works. But I got to say, I was not on board with this, but I I felt a little bit more. uh, I was persuaded maybe maybe by Ken's um, nefarious uh, idea. Philip, it's Ray. Uh, I think he's dead, but he's found some kind of help. So I'm not 100%. And I, mm, I saw something in Cooper. It may be the key to what this is all about. He says it's in Cooper. It's not removed from him. He said he saw something in Cooper. Again, it's a past tense present. It was, it was, it was in Cooper. He saw the woodsman review it or remove it. The woodsmen are the people that are giving, uh, Mr. C, unexpected help. Yeah, and and Ray's pretty well freaking out at this moment, and justifiably so. I mean, he's just, you know, he thought he was just going to shoot this bad guy and put a ring on his finger, and then something weird was going to happen to it. And and all of a sudden, these woodsmen start showing up, and he sees Amniotic Bob, and he goes, you know, I think this is the key to it. And like everybody else, including the viewers, knew Bob was the key to it. Ray's the only one who's in the dark here. So the fact that Ray's just now trying to put it all together and not getting everything that's happened, you got to give Ray a little bit of credit here. It's justifiable that he doesn't understand everything he's seen because, good God, who does? Yeah, that's fair enough. And we're, we're also we're also assuming that Ray speaks in perfect uh, standard English grammar, and he could be saying, he said, you got something inside you that they want, the more colloquial slang version of got there, which basically means have, which could mean that it's still there. So that's possible. Um, it's possible. Ray, Ray, I think we'll find we'll we'll find this out soon enough. I think, but yeah, I I'm not sure. Ray Ray is a fucker. Um, <laughs> we know that. Uh, so yeah, and then uh, so the conclusion of that all that is Mr. C walks away. This whole scene has been observed uh, by the farm's closed circuit television system. Uh, Mr. C seems to kind of acknowledge the camera as he walks out of the room, but he doesn't really seem to care. But who's in the room now? Uh, but Mr. Young Master Richard Horn, um, who is apparently a, a member of the farm, uh, even though he seems entirely subservient to Red, who uh, is, you know, 
not a not a big time drug trafficker, I assume, uh, and probably not as big a deal as the proprietor of the farm. I, I guess he has uh, arm wrestled uh, Renzo, but uh, it's kind of weird. No one else seems to acknowledge Richard Horn is there. Uh, but he does have a kind of fascinated look on his face as he sees Mr. C walk away. Yeah. And that look Richard gave him made me wonder if he does, in fact, know that Doppel Cooper is his father, if he is, in fact, his father. Or perhaps even if Doppel Cooper and Richard have been in contact and Doppel Cooper summoned him uh, to the farm. So the, I found that look that Richard gave Doppel Cooper, uh, you know, at least his image on the giant flat screen TV, fascinating. And, and I just have to, I just have to ask about this. You know, we we saw the guy who uh, a few episodes ago, uh, whose truck was stolen, who Andy went and interviewed, and he was credited as the farmer. Although seeing him uh, out at his place with his house and his truck and all that, it looked like he had a yard. There didn't seem to be anything that you would call a farm. And and here we are at the place known as the farm, and it's this uh, this heavily armored. Uh, a compound that's got all this technology. It's got this lift air elevator. It's got this warehouse. It's got all this uh, parking space. None of the stuff that seems to be associated with farming actually has a damn thing to do with farming. And I'm just wondering, is the name ironic? Does David Lynch just not really know how farms work? Or or is there some some bigger thing behind all this that it's it's not a farm in the sense that we think of a farm? And if so, it's a farm for what? Are they growing the black corn that produces Garmin Boja? Or what what are they what are they doing uh here that makes these things farms and farmers because there's nothing evident uh and and then uh, while I'm while I'm at this, let me just add my new theory. Ken is the latest member of the uh, Blue Rose Task Force to disappear mysteriously, and he's now living inside a box in Buenos Aires. Oh, and you know, let me go back to uh, the character of Philip Jeffries, and I know uh, Ken, you've got some more to say, or Ken, uh, Ken doesn't exist, <laughs> Jeff. You've got some things if to Ken, say. If Ken, if Ken Walzak doesn't exist, does Ken? Where, what, what happened to Ken Fallis? Is right, right. No, I right. think that's right. Well, I think that Ken Fallis is on the Flying Dutchman. Uh, yeah, we, we we talked about <laughs> nice segue. Yeah, nice. so yeah, well done. Philip Jeffries is at the Dutchman's, and you know, one theory that one could present for what the Dutchman's represent is, in fact, uh, the famous legendary ghost ship called the Flying Dutchman that has appeared in uh, kind of folklore and literature uh, from the 1700s to the present. It is a a ghost ship uh, that sometimes has a crew, sometimes has no crew whatsoever, sometimes has a crew of dead people. Uh, It is unable to make port anywhere, and it's doomed to sail the oceans forever. Uh, It's reported to be have a glowing ghostly light, And if it's hailed by another ship, the crew of the Flying Dutchman, such as it is, will try to send messages to land or to people long dead. Uh, And generally, the the sight of the phantom ship is a portent of doom. And there was one literary reference in – well, literary historical reference in a a book called A Voyage to Botany Bay uh, that I thought was worth looking at. This is attributed to George Barrington, who uh, lived in the 1700s. I had often heard of the superstition of sailors respecting apparitions and doom, but had never given much credit to the report. It seems that some years since a Dutch man-of-war was lost off the Cape of Good Hope, and every soul on board perished. 
Her consort weathered the gale and arrived soon after at the Cape. Having refitted and returning to Europe, they were assailed by a violent tempest nearly in the same latitude. In the night watch, some of the people saw or imagined they saw a vessel standing for them under oppressive sail as though she would run them down. One in particular affirmed it was the ship that had foundered in the former gale and that it must certainly be her or the apparition of her. But on its clearing up the object, a dark, thick cloud disappeared. Nothing could do away the idea of this phenomenon on the minds of the sailors and on their relating the circumstances when they arrived in port, the story spread like wildfire fire, and the supposed phantom was called the Flying Dutchman. From the Dutch, the English seamen got the infatuation. So we've got a ship that's a copy of another ship that sails an ocean forever. It's a portent of doom. You get close enough, it turns into a dark cloud that made me think of Dougie's head when it turned into uh, a copper ball, the dark cloud of smoke that appeared uh, out of his suit and where his head had been. And, you know, it makes me think that this Dutchman's, the Flying Dutchman is some sort of uh, way station uh, like the Black Lodge uh, for entities that are stuck between worlds. And I would imagine that this ship could be sailing upon the Purple Sea uh, that we saw in episode three of The Return as well as in episode eight. So anyway, that's my theory on the Dutchman's. And JR, JR, that's great. I yeah. Go ahead, Kyle. Let me just throw out there because when you were saying that, and I don't mean to call attention to a verbal slip, but I think it's important. When you were trying to say wildfire, you accidentally slipped up and initially said wildflower, uh, which I think is a, a Freudian slip or what Robert Bly would call a Hermes precision. That we've got uh, Project Blue Rose. Uh, named after a flower that is tracking this stuff down and there is fire where they are going because we have the black fire of the Garmin Boja and, and I, I, I think all this uh, including your verbal slips are, are being planned by Lynch and Frost so this is just another level of brilliance to Twin Peaks The Return or maybe the artist formerly known as Ken <laughs> <laughs> You guys, I have another theory about the Dutchman's. It might not be quite as as fleshed out uh, as JR's, but uh, one of the other great arm wrestling sequences uh, in American cinema occurs uh, in the 1987 film Predator. Uh, And in this film, uh, a character named Dylan, played by Carl Weathers, and a character named Dutch, played by former governor of California Arnold Schwarzenegger, when they meet for the first time, they have to arm wrestle each other. And there is a very prolonged... Uh, an incredible arm wrestling sequence between two characters named Dylan and Dutch in Predator, and Jeffries is at the Dutchman's. That's my theory. Who's Dylan? Carl Weathers. No, I mean like in the metaphor, who's Dylan? Mike. Hmm? You can cut. You can cut this if you need to. <laughs> no, I just. I'm sorry. Depending on which uh, way they were facing, Mike would be either really good or really bad at arm wrestling. That's true. Oh, maybe that's how he lost his arm. <laughs> Although, if he could send, you know, the the electric brain tree out there, and go, hey, you want to arm wrestle? Here's yeah. my electric brain tree evil doppelganger arm. You know, technically and that qualifies. There is, there is that for Micah table in the room above the convenience store, which would be perfect for an arm wrestling match. So. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's move on. <laughs> right, moving on. I think we've addressed that scene uh, well enough. Uh, we connected, right? We go to the Black Lodge or the Red Room uh, where the ring 
uh, disappears from the farm and appears, drops on the floor, uh, and is picked up by uh, Mike and placed on the same pedestal uh, where he placed the ring after Dougie uh, arrived in the Red Room. Uh, and as you mentioned uh, earlier, I think, Jeff, uh, Ray's body uh, appears, uh, or a copy of his body at least, appears in the Black Lodge, perhaps representing his soul. Yeah, and I think this is the biggest single moment in this episode because when you hear the ring hit the floor and then they shift back to our side of the red curtains here, the sound made in this world by the reverberation of the ring on the red room floor seemed pretty clearly to me uh, to be the the source of the hum that we've been hearing in the Great Northern and elsewhere. And I, I think that that to me just that that blew my mind more than any other thing in this episode was just this idea of the hum coming from the owl ring in the red room, which makes perfect sense when you think about it. Yeah. I've got to go back and listen to that more carefully, but I like that idea, Kyle. Um, and also, I just want to point out about this little scene that this was the first of a lot of repetitions we will get uh, from this episode kind of going forward. Mike's hand kind of putting that ring back on its pedestal seemed like more or less uh, the same kind of scene we got uh, when Dougie you know, got sent to the lodge in episode three. Uh, it happens, I think, in Fire Welcome Me too, although I think it's the little man from another place who puts the ring uh, back uh, in its place. But we, as we all know, he's evolved into a brain tree, so I don't right. think he can do that anymore. Right, right. Well, and, and we had repetitions last week uh, with the Dr. Amp sequence, which, again, all this tying together uh, raises the question, is it future or is it past? And finally, uh, it also raises the question whether Ken has been taken over by an atomic desert frog and or amniotic bob, and that's why he's really not on this week's podcast. I have a different theory, Kyle. I think that okay. um, Ken has been hired to be the script doctor for uh, a reboot of Reno 911, uh, <laughs> except it's being called Reno 119. And at the beginning of the next scene, it was actually being shot in the next room. Right. Uh, I, I totally as, believe as that. The, as the Fusco detectives are talking about uh, the call and eating dinner with their mom, which will never happen because there will inevitably be nur- murders this weekend. Haha. There's this amazing scene going on off camera uh, with, you know, these great lines like, uh, you know, uh, she's pissing on the floor and I'll shit in your mouth. And, and there's this the way it says, and she's got a knife. <laughs> And then she says, you know, fuck you, Twinkies. I'll cut your nuts off. Taser, Phil, taser. Lots of screaming and groaning. And then, you know, of course, someone wants to report a cop. And these uh, officers who presumably can hear this going on just completely, uh, you know, placid, uh, uninterested entirely on the mayhem that's going on next door, which, like I said, is the reboot of now called Reno 119, uh, where Ken has been hired as the script doctor. Um, So they've run Dougie's prints, but it's a huge mistake. He's not, of course, a missing FBI agent who escaped from prison. That's impossible. And so they literally throw the print report in the trash, uh, and that's that. Um, Anthony shows up looking for Detective Clark. Uh, He talks to Detective Clark, who's a particularly shady character, wants to know about poison. Clark has some poison, but it'll cost $5,000. Clark does not think think highly of Anthony, thinks he's a coward, and tells his uh, colleague, another uh, apparently corrupt officer, that Anthony's cracking, uh, and his colleague is going to call Duncan Todd to let him know. 
as if he didn't already. And uh, the Clark, the the cop who's played by John Savage, who's in the Deer Hunter and, and other films, uh, the poison that I guess he recommends to Anthony Sinclair is called, I believe it's pronounced aconitin, uh, which uh, was used by Cleopatra to poison her brother Ptolemy. It's also showed up in uh, an Oscar Wilde short story, and then in James Joyce's Ulysses, I believe it's what Leopold Bloom's father used to commit uh, suicide. Uh, but I was interested that uh, you know it it it's slow acting, and that's the reason he, uh, Clark chooses it. It'll give the coward Sinclair time to to leave the scene, and also just you know these two cops also seem like they're in league with Duncan Todd. Who's you know uh, seems like he's involved in just about everything, uh, dirty and crooked in in Vegas. Yeah, and and the fact that it's a slow acting uh, poison is is really critical to something important in uh, in De- Detective Clark's dialogue here. First of all, let me back up and just say I love the way that the detectives Fusco dismiss Dougie's fingerprints as an error because he couldn't possibly be who the fingerprints show him to be, which I think is just beautiful. Um, but Detective Clark's comment about the poison uh, taking long to take effect is he specifically says it takes two hours. Uh, and that's big because in part 10, Bradley Mitchum complained that Candy was taking four hours talking to Tony in the casino. And then in part 11, when the Mitchum brothers were eating breakfast at 2.23 in the afternoon, Rodney asked Bradley if he could wait another three hours. And that gave rise to a theory that we were counting down to the return of the Good Dale. Four hours, then three hours the next week. But there was no similar reference in part 12. But as Jeff has already pointed out, part 12 um, was it, first of all, was the least Kyle McLaughlin centric episode of Twin Peaks: The Return. It's the only episode in which he has no speaking part, and it's clear, uh, as Jeff pointed out, that uh, his appearance in Part Twelve is out of chronological order. Part Thirteen very clearly begins the morning after Part Eleven ends, and Janie E said he didn't come home that night. So Dougie playing catch with Sonny Jim couldn't have happened in between the two. So in terms of the Dougie storyline. This is sequentially the episode immediately after part 11, and sure enough, the countdown continues with another hour being ticked off in Las Vegas when he says two hours. So you got four, three, two. If someone in Las Vegas in next week's episode mentions one hour, I think that's a pretty clear tip-off that uh, that Dale Cooper is returning for real uh, in part 15. Uh, and as far as characters returning, I think Ken is a plot line that David Lynch never intended to resolve. Okay, so the next part of this episode uh, is the uh, Royale with cheese moment of uh, (laughs) (laughs) Twin Peaks The Return, (laughs) where uh, Hutch and Chantal have this like very kind of brief uh, dialogue, uh, ill-informed dialogue about Utah and Mormons. Uh, Chantal's eating Cheetos the whole time. Uh, she, you know, brings up the fact that Mormons don't drink uh, Coca-Cola, which immediately made me think of high fructose corn syrup. Um, and Hutch makes the observation that they can have uh, quite particularly six or ten wives, uh, which, which I thought was great. Uh, not six to ten or, you know, a range of wives, but they you get six or you get ten. Um, <laughs> Chantal wonders why there aren't more, uh, presumably of Mormons, and she assumes that it's the drinks. 
I, I love the delightful randomness of this scene. I mean, it manages to add humor in the midst of the, the foreboding David Lynch driving at night scene, which is usually a very bad sign of things. And, and I would just add, as a native Georgian, uh, the only way I could have enjoyed this scene more is if when Chantal said Mormons couldn't drink Coca-Cola, Hutchett asked her, is Pepsi okay? And I, I was just going to say, yeah, I love this, this scene too. And, uh, you know, it, it seems Hutch and Chantal are almost this like degraded, you know, version of like Sailor and Lula, you know, from Wild at Heart on yeah. this yeah. road trip that never ends. Uh, and I also was, you know, um, we've talked about the nature of their, their open relationship before, you know, so I was, I was, I was curious if that might have been why, why, uh, Hutch was interested in, in uh, yeah. polyamory. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. I think uh, I think the Mormons are too limited because it's it's you know it's merely polygamy. Um, right. Hutch and Chantal have true, a much true. Thank you. Much broader view of things, I think. Um, and he's got another five or nine wives coming his way. So that's right. <laughs> we go back to the Lucky Seven building. Janie E is beaming with all the trappings of bourgeois fulfillment that she could ever imagine. She's very smiley and happy. Anthony, however, is very nervous because he is there to poison Dougie. He's in the lobby. He watches Dougie ran into the glass door in the front of the building like a goddamn bird. <laughs> uh, it, 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 I wonder if that weakens his resolve. Uh, it starts to weaken his resolve to, to kill Dougie. Uh, he takes Dougie to Zyman's for coffee. Uh, and in the course of them sitting down to their cups of coffee, Dougie's drawn to the coffee shop, this time not by Mike, but merely by cherry pie. Uh, and Anthony uses this opportunity to put the poison in Dougie's coffee cup. Uh, Dougie comes back and sees like a white powder on uh, Anthony's shoulders and, and, and collar. Uh, apparently, you know, it could be dandruff. Uh, maybe it's the poison because he kind of he flicks his wrist as he as he uh puts the poison back into his coat and i wondered if there might be like bits of poison dust that landed on his coat that dougie was seeing i don't know i was so nervous that dougie was going to die at this point that uh i don't, I don't think i was thinking clearly um anyway uh, dougie rubs anthony's shoulders uh almost like he's giving him a massage and at this point anthony's had enough he he can't do it he runs to the bathroom pours the poison coffee cup out in a urinal. Uh, and, and that is that prompting the guy yeah. <laughs> who's urinating next to him with a stall to say that bad, huh? <laughs> uh, which was th- that. And then, and then you, I don't think you mentioned it, uh, Jared, but, but Ducky just walking into the glass door yes. <laughs> with his face. Those yes. are, are two of, I, I, mean, I think, you know what, the, Jeff, I think that yeah. guy in the bathroom was talking about uh, Anthony's conversion to Mormonism. He might've been. <laughs> That guy might have been. It's tough. Ken it's as tough. Well. It's tough to give up coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I can't back it up. I, I love this I, whole scene. Yeah, it is too. Amazing. Yeah, I thought I thought uh, while I was watching it, I thought it was dandruff on the back of his collar, but I didn't think about it that in that depth. But while I was watching it, uh, the thought that popped into my head, and I can't back this up at all, is whether the dandruff on Anthony's collar was evoking some vestigial memory in Cooper of the cocaine residue that was found during the Laura Palmer murder investigation. And speaking of the murder of Laura Palmer, my new Ken theory is the producers killed Ken off in another appalling instance of Walzak in refrigerators. Yeah. And actually speaking of that, uh, Kyle, 
Um, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier in the show. I received a highly encrypted transmission. Uh, it purports to to be from France. I, I don't know where it's from. It's bounced uh, across so many different dummy addresses across the dark web. Uh, I don't know where it's from. Uh, but it, it does purport to be Ben's uh, beverage corner, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, I am interpreting as a direct threat and will be ha- have been and will continue to report uh, Ken to the authorities uh, because he is threatening all of our lives. So now I will introduce Ken's beverage corner. Please. Yeah. Hello, everybody, and greetings from Lyon, France. I just wanted to talk about poison today because there is a lot of poison in this episode of Twin Peaks. There is obviously an attempted poisoning via coffee, and I thought it would be interesting to talk a little about the ways in which cocktails and beverages that are available in cocktail bars now can be poisonous if not treated properly. So, specifically, I wanted to mention activated charcoal, which is uh, in trendy cocktails occasionally because it can make them jet black and activated charcoal can be dangerous because it is highly absorptive. The point of activated charcoal is that it sucks up everything around it. It's the reason that it's used to treat poisoning victims and the reason it's used in water filters. But when placed into a cocktail, it can absorb, for example, the medications in your bloodstream. So if you take it shortly after a heart medication or an antidepressant or a birth control pill, the effects of that medication can be nullified by your activated charcoal cocktail. So that's uh, something to keep in mind and to be wary of. Uh, Quinine is a problem as well. Uh, In large quantities, kinchona bark, which is what is usually used to put the quinine in your tonic water, is highly toxic. You can get kinchonism from large quantities of quinine, which is to say from large quantities of kinchona bark. And uh, this is a danger because an awful lot of bars now are making their own tonic water by making their own tonic syrup. And if they were to use, for example powdered kinchona bark instead of kinchona bark chips, the absorption rate of botanical components from that powder is much faster than the rate from the bark chips, and that can cause uh, a spike in the levels of kinchona in your tonic syrup and therefore tonic water. And that's very serious. People have uh, nearly died. People have gotten very sick. You get swelling, ringing in the ears, muscle weakness, that sort of thing. I actually know people specifically in the bar industry who have gotten very sick from kinchonism because they were trying a gin that they were were uh, promoting mixed with a homemade tonic in some bar somewhere. So that's something to be aware of. Be very careful before you sample someone's homemade tonic. But most importantly, I wanted to talk about tobacco. I think this is both the most severe issue right now and the most Twin Peaksy. as I think that uh, Gordon Cole, for example, who has avoided cigarettes in recent years, might be tempted to enjoy his tobacco now in alcohol form. There are a lot of bars out there that will try to sell you a drink with tobacco bitters or a tobacco tincture in them, and I'm here to tell you that you should avoid them entirely. There is simply no safe amount of tobacco for beverage consumption. And the reason for that is, just as I said with the um, activated charcoal in a way, alcohol is a solvent, and so it leaches the chemically active ingredients out of anything it touches, whether that be oak, wood from a barrel, or a tobacco leaf. And so you get all of the nicotine that you would be putting into a cigarette, uh, and then some, in your tobacco tincture very, very fast and very intensely. Consuming your tobacco and beverage form also increases bioavailability. That is to say, instead of getting the smoke in your lungs, you're getting this 
tincture or bitters in your stomach, and the stomach lining is extremely, extremely receptive to dangerous chemicals like that. Think about like the difference between edible marijuana and smoking marijuana, right? Uh, edible marijuana is much more intense because, of course, you're ingesting it through your stomach and intestinal linings. So tobacco bitters are not legal, they're not safe, and tobacco poisoning is very, very serious. You can get uh, high blood pressure, a heart attack, you can even die from tobacco poisoning, and unlike smoking a million cigarettes or however many it would take or a few very large cigars, there isn't usually the feeling of nausea immediately before it kicks in. So you can become very drunk-seeming, very irritable, and then sort of pass out, and it can be very, very dangerous. So uh, there have been several articles about this in Imbibe magazine, one by Paul Clark, who I think is very, very good, and some fine research done by Avery Glasser, who also himself had Kinchonism uh, and did a lot of research on this, and uh, my friend Camper English. So I recommend their work on the subject, but I think that if you are Gordon Cole, if you are someone like Gordon, and you are craving a tobacco fix, but not interested in returning to American Spirit cigarettes, I would urge you not to consume your tobacco in beverage form, uh, because otherwise you could end up poisoned and not nearly poisoned like Dougie Jones. This has been, from France, Ken's Beverage Corner. Can I go back to the scene now? Is that okay? Or Sure. Yeah, that's that's okay. That's okay. You're allowed to do that. Is that enough time? Okay. That's great. Um, I was going to, I liked Kyle's, you know, idea about, uh, you know, the, the dandruff evoking Cooper's memory of the, the cocaine residue, right? During Laura Palmer's murder investigation. But I, I kind of suspect that level of, of memory might be fried, uh, at this point for, uh, Dougie Cooper. Um, I thought that perhaps this might remind Cooper more specifically of his more recent journey through space and stars in episode three of this season. I like this idea of dandruff as stardust. Um, it seemed absurd and poetic, like the best of uh, things involving Dougie Jones. Uh, and also really loved that it was this kind of human touch, this kind of moment of tenderness that really seemed to get to Anthony Sinclair. I liked how he just kind of went with, Oh, you know, almost Dougie massaging him and just kind of like he, you know, he'd been so tense and, and, and stressed out this idea of St. Dougie healing by the laying on of hands. Um, and I guess, you know, I just like to maybe use this kind of moment to talk about some thoughts I've been having recently about Dougie, you know, as Cooper's uh, next, I'm not sure incarnation uh, continuation of his soul's journey in a way. The big question that everyone's been waiting for is, you know, when is Cooper going to wake up, you know, uh, and, and people have been predicting it, you know, for about, you know, eight episodes now. Um, and I have been considering the fact that he might not wake up, you know, or, or if it does happen, it may be in the very uh, 15 minutes, but uh, the last 15 minutes of the entire series. But I was thinking about, you know, Dougie and the virtues of Dougie and uh, was thinking about Agent Cooper and everyone wants him back. Uh, but I was thinking about the fact that as much as we all love Agent Cooper, you know, as a character, um, he did fail uh, in his spiritual journey through the Lodge. You know, he faced it with what, uh, you know, I think called, called imperfect courage, and he let fear triumph over love. You know, he was, I think, mortally wounded. I think when he faces kind of uh, Caroline, uh, you know, her ghost or doppelganger or whatever, uh, and then he encounters what Hawk says is crucial, your, your shadow self, the dweller on the threshold, his doppelganger, and Cooper runs in fear um, instead of, I guess, 
facing, you know, letting love triumph over fear at that kind of moment of truth in, in the Black Lodge. And then he gets trapped there and uh, his doppelganger gets loose, um, which I don't think is supposed to happen. Doesn't seem to me at least like it happens very often. Uh, but then Cooper has to serve out his 25 years in the Black Lodge. And again, Hawk, uh, a couple of his monologues in season two seem to be our best guide to how all this works. Um, Hawk says each soul must pass through the Black Lodge on its way to perfection. Uh, and so Coop did serve his 25 years there. And now he's out and he's Dougie. Uh, and I, I wondered if perhaps this might be his soul uh, on its way to perfection. You know, he does have these kind of traits, these vestiges of Cooper. He's more like an innocent child who is, you know, incredibly lucky uh, and seems to evade all these, uh, every attempt to um, cause harm to him, all these assassination attempts. It's almost become comical now. And even, you know, the Fusco brothers, you know, they throw the, the proof of who he is into the into the garbage. Um, and so far, he's mostly had positive effects on everyone he's come into contact with and seems like this kind of magical embodiment of innocence, love. This is like Agent Cooper at his best, um, but Dougie doesn't seem to be running into the same problems of sometimes letting his emotions overrule him as happened with Cooper's involvement with, with Caroline, Wyndham Earl's wife, and as well, and to an extent, with his involvement with, with Annie Blackburn. Um, for all his complete kind of obliviousness, uh, Dougie Cooper still is in touch with his environment when he kind of needs to be and seems to read the signs uh, around him in this kind of mystical and intuitive way um, that uh, Cooper employed more inconsistently and unevenly. Um, and, you know, like, like I... Dougie does remember certain aspects of Agent Cooper's past uh, through a glass darkly. Uh, and yes, Kyle used this word a few uh, episodes ago, like a palimpsest, um, kind of in the same way that some children supposedly remember fragments, aspects of their previous lives up to a certain age, if you, uh, you know, or uh, believe it in reincarnation. But um, I did wonder sort of if Dougie might be a more, uh, you know, a, a version of Cooper on his way to perfection and, and there is a good chance, especially as we near the end of the season, he might not wake up like everyone's been expecting. Um, however, he was tricked um, uh, by the arms doppelganger and the kind of dynamic by which these things seem to be governed. The metaphysical dynamic seems to have been misappropriated or misused in his. Uh, so perhaps he is um, a special case. But that was just something that's kind of been brewing in my mind for the last few episodes. And I kind of thought that this might be a good uh, instant to voice it. That's really good. But when you said that about dandruff being stardust, I immediately, the two things that popped into my head were number one, the dandruff casino in Las Vegas. And number two, Philip Jeffries, David Bowie as Ziggy dandruff. And I'm sorry, that just, I, I couldn't let go of that while you were making your really yeah, great Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to cut it. Don't worry. It's fine. <laughs> Can is Ziggy Dandruff. Um, He's playing a show in Lyon right now. (laughs) (laughs) The next scene, Shelly is at the Double R Diner. She gets a call from Becky, and I think we can be certain that this scene takes place before the last time we saw Shelly and uh, and Becky in particular, because Becky is worried about her husband, Stephen. He's been missing. 
Of course, maybe that's because she fucking shot him or tried to shoot him through the door of his girlfriend. I would probably be missing, too, if somebody were trying to shoot me with a gun. Anyway, Shelly comforts her, invites her to the double R for pie, ice cream, and extra whipped cream. And here I have to note that uh, Shelly is once again wearing the red heels, making this the fifth straight episode to feature a woman wearing red heels. These are the same shoes she was wearing when she was doing the TJ Hooker thing and riding on the, on the front of, uh, of Becky's car. And JR, that may actually go to your point about when this happens chronologically, because at least one of those shoes flew off and she might not have gotten them back, but she's, she's wearing them here. But uh, since we're talking about the color of the shoes, uh, I think now is the time for, for Kyle's color corner. All right, here, here is the uh, chromatic, thematic through line that I see in this episode. Um, uh, what we've seen here in part 13 is several instances of blue uh, proving to be the signature color of this episode and particularly uh, taking the place of one of the three familiar colors that we've seen. And let me just run through them real quickly. When we open in the Lucky 7 lobby, uh, we see some of the, the furniture and some of the, the, the sort of uh, f- uh, furnishings in the, in the lobby there. Um, uh, they're blue alongside ones that are red and yellow. There's blue on the screen in Bushnell's office. There are blue bands on Tony's computer screen and his office phone. There's blue on Duncan Todd's tie. There's blue on Sonny Jim's gym set uh, alongside red and yellow. The delivery man with the gym set is wearing a blue coverall. Janie and Sonny Jim are wearing blue jeans. There's blue in the cargo elevator in Montana alongside red and yellow. Doppel Cooper looks like he's wearing a dark blue T-shirt. Janie E., when she pulls up in the BMW to drop uh, Dougie off at work on her shirt pocket, there are three stripes of red, yellow, and blue. There are blue chairs in Simon's alongside red and yellow. There's blue on the double R sign alongside red and yellow. Shelly, of course, is wearing her blue waitress uniform. Becky is wearing a blue shirt and blue jeans. Bobby and Ed are wearing blue jeans. Walter comes in later wearing a blue shirt. The customer in the booth between Big Ed and Norma is wearing a blue cap and a blue shirt. There's a blue tint to the boxing match on Sarah's television. So there's a lot of blue. And in particular, there's a lot of blue alongside red and yellow. So throughout, we're seeing this intruding blue being substituted for the usual benevolent green. Why? And I think it's because we really got the foreshadowing of this in the previous episode where there was a lot of talk about blue book Blue Rose, Blue Pine Mountain, uh, all of which are signs that the good guys, the, the Air Force, the FBI, are coming to the rescue. Uh, and we also, in substituting red, yellow, and blue for red, yellow, and green, uh, we get to the primary colors of red, yellow, and blue, uh, which maybe this is just my mindset, but I think most people associate those colors uh, with a single character being Superman. And with primary, of course, we're talking about things being fundamental. And with Superman, we're talking about unvarnished heroism and simple decency, uh, which, of course, is embodied in the form of Dale Cooper. And as as Jeff just pointed out, really is truly embodied in the form of Dougie, uh, who, who doesn't have any of these higher order functions. He's just doing the right thing uh, with this very basic fundamental human decency. And, and again, I think it's all part of the signposts in this episode, all pointing in in the direction of things taking a turn for the better. And this has been Kyle's Color Corner. Thanks for that, Kyle. We're, we'll move on to Bud Mullen's office. 
where Anthony has confessed that he was going to poison Dougie. Uh, Anthony is completely under Dougie's control. Uh, it's amazing. Everything that Dougie says, uh, Anthony says, yes, yes, of course, Dougie. <laughs> he's, um, he, he's, he's completely in a, in a, in a point of submission. Uh, not just to, to his boss, Bud, uh, for whom he seeks, you know, forgiveness and salvation, but also to Dougie. Um, he confesses that he works for Duncan Todd. It, the confession is tempering Bud's anger, uh, at Anthony for his, you know, uh, faithlessness. Bud wants Anthony to testify against Duncan Todd. Uh, Anthony, he'll do it. He says, I, I just want to die or change, which of course calls to mind Gordon Cole's command of change your hearts or die. Bud also wants Anthony to turn on the corrupt cops, uh, Clark and, and the other guy. Anthony is going to do it. He eventually relents, but he says those cops are even worse than Todd. Uh, he also says that he'd been vomiting blood. Yeah, and, and that to me calls to mind uh, Audrey's dream because he's got blood coming from his mouth the way uh, Audrey was talking about Billy uh, and related to Audrey. My new theory is that Ken never awakened from his coma after the bank vault explosion in the season two finale. And so Ken has been unconscious in Calhoun Memorial Hospital this whole time. This is all his dream. Yeah, I, I, I was just going to give props to Tom Sizemore for another astonishing crying scene that probably rivals, you know, Matthew Lillard's, uh, uh, you know, uh, interrogation room confession and part of a long line of Lynch's uh, Twin Peaks fascination with people breaking down and, and crying uh, that, you know, goes all the way back to um, the pilot. And I, I love Dougie's little confess and uh, Sinclair's reaction to it. As you said, JR, him being totally kind of under um, Dougie's spell. And I'm also interested to wonder if, uh, Duncan Todd's Empire of Sin might finally uh, be crumbling. Uh, we'll see uh, how this all plays out. But yeah, I, I love this scene. Yeah, we, we shift back to the Double R Diner. Uh, again, it appears that we're back in time. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Bobby Briggs comes in to uh, have the usual. He comes to the counter. Uh, then he checks in where we see Norma, who, of course, is doing paperwork. <laughs> and we see... Big Ed. Yes. Big props to Big Ed. Uh, really, uh, not everybody likes Big Ed, but I do. Um, nobody can do a bolo tie like he can. Uh, and he's he's there. He invites Bobby to join them. Bobby says that he found they found some stuff his dad left today, uh, which really, I think, is hard to square, given the previous scenes where we've seen Bobby. Um, this, this scene has to take place, I think, before uh, the last time we saw Bobby at the double R. Uh, where, you know, there was the shooting and the mutant fish girl uh, threw up on everything. Um, <clears throat> so now a new guy po- shows up. Uh, this is uh, Walter, uh, who, Kyle, you observed that he's played by Grant yes. Goodeve, who is one of the oldest of the eight Bradford children on Eight is Enough. Uh, what I recalled is that this guy uh, played Rick Pedersen, who was Maggie's girlfriend or boyfriend rather for the first season of Northern Exposure. Uh, I think like just about any other young man at the time had a huge crush on Maggie. And we were all pleased to see uh, this character of Rick Pedersen uh, die by satellite uh, at the end of that season. And I really hope that that happens to Walter uh, here um, in Twin Peaks. Um so yeah, he he is here to tell Norma uh, that her franchise stores are making profits, 
three out of five of them, which is great news given that he, as he says, this whole region still faces such uphill challenges economically. Uh, we've brought this up before, but I really think it's interesting how historically rooted uh, in the contemporary the return of Twin Peaks is compared to seasons one and two. In many, many respects, the plot of seasons one and two in Twin Peaks could have taken place in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or even the 50s. Uh, there's not much, if any, reference to events and history outside of the immediate area of Twin Peaks. Uh, but that's obviously not the case in the return because not only uh, is the focus of the show not geographically limited to Twin Peaks, but Twin Peaks is a place where the people have been affected by history. History has happened to them. And this this is seen primarily in two respects, uh, the post-2008 crash, the recession, the general economic downturn uh, that almost everybody except for Nadine seems to have seen in their lives. Uh, nobody really seems to be doing much better. Everybody seems to be doing worse. Uh, they're, they may have a job, but wages are going down. Uh, you know, Becky can't even make enough working for the bread company. Uh, and as well, uh, the show is rooted in the invasion of Iraq. Uh, we, we've seen a couple references to that uh, in terms of, you know, people who are suffering uh, because of that particular ev- event in history, uh, which, uh, you know, like the Vietnam War, uh, although not as significant in terms of the number of American lives lost, uh, still has a, a very powerful effect on uh, the people that had to live through that experience. Anyway, I, I, that was just an aside, but I couldn't stop thinking about that when <clears throat> Walter makes his comment about uphill challenges economically. So, yeah, Walter is literally one of the fucks at it again. Uh, he wants Norma to stop using high quality, as she says, natural, organic, local ingredients in her pies because her profitable stores have started using crappy ingredients and they're making more money. Uh, Norma has heard that those pies are no good. Uh, and Walter, you know, tries to, um, assure her that he knows that Norma's a real artist who makes them with love, but love doesn't always turn a profit. And Walter just wants to find consistency and profitability, you know, doesn't really care about the quality, uh, the ultimate, you know, substantive quality uh, that Norma cares about. Big Ed looks really sad several booths down because he removes himself with Bobby after Walter shows up. I do think Big Ed was wearing a wedding ring. Yeah. So it sounds like he never, he was not able, presumably he was unable to overcome his guilt about shooting Nadine's eye out, at least in one version of the time stream. And that's, you know, again, he he still, despite how happy he and Norma were uh, in season two, uh, they never did get back together because Walter flirts with. Norma and Norma seems to return it. They're still going to go out to dinner to celebrate, despite the fact that, uh, uh, you know, Walter's a complete asshole. Yeah. And I, you know, um, this kind of conversation between Walter and Norma here, especially, you know, this bit about the, uh, you know, imitators using, you know, not the, not, not the natural organic ingredients in the pies, these kind of cheap imitations that are making more cash as well as, especially for me, the line, Norma, you're a real artist, but love doesn't always turn a profit. I saw Lynch talking uh, to some extent uh, uh, about his adventures in Hollywood, uh, the film industry, and in and, and TV land. Uh, but uh, I, I do uh, – the, the existence of Twin Peaks Return 
uh, has me convinced uh, and reassured that Lynch isn't going to close the goddamn original location of the Double R Diner. <laughs> Just and and I have four quick things, uh, uh, real real briefly here. Uh, you know, we'd all thought that the coffee, we'd all thought the cherry pie were going to be what brought Dougie Coop back to full coopness. Uh, maybe with this reference to uh, the importance of the local, organically grown ingredients, maybe what Dougie Coop needs isn't just any old cherry pie. Maybe he needs one of Norma's original recipe pies made with genuine Twin Peaks ingredients. And JR, when you were talking there about the, the economic Economic uh, concern. It, it kind of brought me back to our earlier discussion about you know the farmer and the farm, which things that you know they, they appear very industrialized, and that kind of ties into this idea of you know mass production and factory farming. I mean the 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 farm, the place known as the farm, is in many ways much more akin to a factory than an actual farm, and and that I think ties into this idea with her talking about the importance of using uh, locally grown or organic, you know, uh, good quality ingredients. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, my new theory on Ken's whereabouts is that he's evolved into an electric brain tree. And then fourth and finally, um, and you can pick any one of these, my votes for episode title are Mutant Fish Girl, Ziggy Dandruff, and <laughs> Die by Satellite. Any one of those is acceptable. I just received a bullet that uh, someone who looked like Ken uh, vomited in a small town in France and caused a rearrangement of space and time. So <laughs> something to look out for our French listeners. Uh, and, and in response to something that the, you know, um, malevolent uh, spirit who might be, have been masquerading as, as Ken for these last few months, uh, he did seem really disturbed, especially in the first few episodes of Twin Peaks to return just about how, you know, depressing uh, and dark everything was for, the characters who had remained in the small town of Twin Peaks. But uh, one, you know, uh, response to that I thought about was uh, what American small town hasn't, uh, you know, is it exactly the same place that it was in, in, you know, 1990, 1991. And back to your point, JR, about, uh, you know, uh, the show being socially aware and willing to make common, you know, topical commentary in a way that much of the rest of Lynch's work doesn't. Uh, I, I thought about that idea. Uh, and then also, as we said, this scene with Bobby, you know, talking about uh, the events and the timeline uh, in terms of finding what his father had left him, seeming like this takes place before the events, at least in uh, episode 11, more evidence that we have a timeline that doesn't quite match up and that things are happening in Twin Peaks, especially out of conventional narrative order. Uh, and a couple of people wrote about this this week. Uh, and one commentator kind of compared Lynch's editing style, uh, especially in recent episodes is making, you know, a bartender sort of making, you know, a, a cocktail. Uh, and then Jeff Jensen, who's, write-ups each week in Entertainment Weekly, I think, are some of the best ones, uh, the best recaps of Twin Peaks each week. Uh, he compared it this week to sort of playing solitaire or like a similar kind of card game. He talked about Lynch kind of shuffling, sorting these scenes based on some sort of gut feeling or kind of intuition on what would make a good episode. Um, and I think that could be right, uh, but there is also a chance that we're working towards some sort of event horizon event, uh, something like a visit to Jackrabbit's Palace um, that's going to rip apart time as we know it, uh, or that there's going to be perhaps some meta-dream narrator, Audrey, uh, perhaps, uh, for 
the entire story and then it's going to get very kind of Mulhall Drive, Lost Highway, and then all this kind of scrambled nonlinear narrative will be accounted for uh, in such a way. But as you know, I pointed out earlier, it was definitely kind of unavoidable uh, this week that um, uh, things aren't moving uh, in linear uh, chronology. Yeah, you can tell Ken's not here if Jeff is willing to dare to make a reference to a bartender mixing a drink and intrude on Ken's beverage corner, because that, that would get you in trouble. Yeah, the thing that I, I thought of when you talked about that, Jeff, was uh, Catch-22, uh, which the... Jeff, keep Jeff, Jeff, keep keep your eye on any power outlets yeah, in the room. Absolutely, absolutely. But you know, when when Joseph when Joseph Heller put together Catch Twenty Two, he just randomly arranged the chapters. I mean, they all begin and end with with linkages that tell you where it falls in the narrative, but it doesn't occur in chronological order. And I, I I'm I know I'm alone on this, but I'm almost to the point where when this is all over. I want to see a Twin Peaks The Return re-edit like the one they did for The Godfather Complete Epic when they showed the whole thing on television that puts all the scenes in chronological order. I really only want to see that once, but I, I just to make my brain wrap around it, I frankly, I'd like to see the whole thing. Take Firewalk With Me, take The Missing Pieces, take the original series, take Twin Peaks The Return, put everything in order, and let us watch it that way to see how it unfolds because we'd mentioned Reservoir Dog earlier you know you put it you put it in the order it happens in and it becomes something completely different and and i just like to see that even though i realize obviously i just gave david lynch the idea for one more way to get me to give him my money for another version of something that i already own kyle that that version of twin peaks return actually the entire twin peaks saga is is playing now but you can only see it at, at one movie theater and that theater is run by the fireman and senorita dido and Ken, Ken is Ken is selling fraudulent tickets uh, uh, on a street corner in France right now to easily duped uh, Frenchmen and cowboys who uh, you know are, it's at a, at a very high price. Is it at that place in Paris where you got a drink but he didn't go because he heard they were overpriced and they had the theater in the back? Is that where that was? Might be the same one. Yeah. Okay. All right. Club Silencio. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> right. Right. Well, you know, speaking of the proper order of things, Kyle, I, a theory just occurred to me. I think that there is something that Agent Cooper, the real Agent Cooper, must do. He must do before he goes to Twin Peaks. And it does involve Pi, but not Norma's. He has to go to the Lamplighter Inn. The Lamplighter Inn, yeah. Because they got a cherry pie that will kill you. Right. And they, they do. Uh, and in fact, uh, that's because uh, the cherry pies have been poisoned uh, by Ken. <laughs> By Ken, uh, who right. Is, who it is, will literally is, kill you. Right. In, in fact, he's delivering pies from the Lamplighter Inn uh, to uh, the Double R Diner. And these these pies have been infused with uh, tinctures of tobacco, uh, with quinine, and with activated charcoal. He's going to feed them to Norma. And, and then he is going to try to bribe uh, Shelley, Slugworth style, for the secret recipe to Norma's pies. And this just goes that's, to my that's, final... That's, that's what Ken's yeah. doing right now. This goes to my final theory, JR, that Ken is in fact my doppelganger, and I have put <laughs> the owl ring on him and sent him back to the Black Lodge where he belongs. <laughs> okay. I don't think that we've had enough to say about where Ken actually is this week, but we got to move on. <laughs> um, to uh, run silent, run drapes, Dr. J- Jacoby notices one of his shovels in the window, uh, he stops, he buzzes Nadine, Nadine comes out, 
Nadine loves his show so much. Uh, he has done so much for her. And, you know, it, I thought of this, too. You noted this, Jeff, that, you know, Dr. Jacob- Jacoby has been Nadine's doctor at two different occasions, uh, which is not really referenced here at all, though they do have an association. Uh, he treated Nadine after when she thought she was in high school, but also we know from the secret history uh, when she was a teenager um, after, after her uh, accident. Uh, so, so there's this weird kind of chemistry between the two of them. We know Dr. Jacoby has some, you know, ethically questionable practices when it comes to his patients. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> that also comes to mind. Uh, we wonder if that was in play when Nadine was either in high school or thought she was. And anyway, he last saw her when seven years ago when she was searching for a potato on the floor of the supermarket. She dropped it, and there was a big storm that day. Uh, it's, it's a weird exchange, but, uh, Nadine has been shoveling herself out of the shit and it's interesting because Dr. Jacoby says, you know, it's us against them. And you wonder if battle lines are forming and whether Dr. Amp's brigade are going to be instrumental in the fight against the black. There's this, yeah, there's this great bit in the, the secret history, uh, where you get after Nadine's, you know, accident when she lost her eye, Jacoby's. Uh, you know, recommendations for treatment for her. And uh, he wanted to, <clears throat> you know, treat her with right. nature walk, silent meditation, lots of peace and quiet, uh, a lot of time looking at trees, listening to the wind. That sounds like what we've seen at Dr. Amp's uh, life uh, out in the woods in his cabin uh, in between webcasts. But I was also, mm-hmm. I loved, you know, the way that that, uh, you know, uh, his uh, diagnosis of her, he really wanted to treat her with his, red and blue 3d glasses he thought that would have been uh the best way right uh to to treat uh her missing eye and i maybe we will live to see that i don't know yeah and i i have no idea whether there's any significance to the supermarket search for the on the stormy day seven years ago uh but i just love nadine bragging that the drapes are completely silent i mean no one's dreams have come true as completely and positively as nadine's and and that's why i think after bradley mitchum and sunny jim nadine hurley is season three's third returning robin and and really ironically part 13 is the episode in which our luck is changing for the better okay um on a less happy note we go to the Palmer house uh, where Sarah Palmer is sitting, watching television, drinking and smoking cigarettes in the home where her husband raped her daughter for like a decade. And there's this eternal recurrence going on where the same 30 seconds of an old boxing match keep playing over and over again. The TV repeats, but her vodka bottles don't replenish themselves. So she has to keep getting more from the kitchen. And when the static of the TV repeats, it sounds a little bit like the scratching noise at the Grey Lodge gramophone, I thought, or or even the sound that the uh, moth frog bug made. Um, There's a plate of food uh, next to the sort of station where she keeps all of her booze and cigarettes and Bloody Mary mix. It looks like mac and cheese, maybe. 
Uh, it's not corn or, or cream corn, which is uh, which is nice, but I know you think it's microwave Garmin Bosia. I think like it's Chad microwave Garmin Bosia. That's right. She's eating the same microwave Garmin Bosia Chad ate in part nine, the same stuff that Ed's eating at the end of the episode. And and really, you know, in light of the the old school Twin Peaks vibe that, that I think we all got off of Hawk's visit to the Palmer House in the previous episode, the fact that there's a repeating time displacement taking place in the Palmer home, similar to the one we saw in the space box in part three, uh, makes those rattling bottles last week even more ominous. And, and I'm wondering, and I, I haven't been able to see anything about it, but do we? Has anyone been able to identify the exact boxing match this is? Uh, you know, whether I don't recognize either of these fighters, and and I just wondered whether it was one of battling Bud Mullins's matches from back in the day. Yeah, I didn't see anything about that either, and I actually looked uh, as well. Uh, I didn't see anyone specifically identify it, but yeah, I also thought uh, I would love it if it was uh, Battle of Bud. Uh, yeah, this scene seemed to me to be, you know, both about just the repetitiveness of kind of addictive behavior, alcoholism. Uh, you know, PTSD, whatever, however, whatever you want to, uh, however you want to look at it, as well as an indication that something is just supernaturally, metaphysically wrong uh, in in the Palmer House. But yeah, it was a a disturbing scene. Yeah, and, and back to your meta commentary point from earlier, Jeff. You know, you 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 talked about we've got a couple of episodes here where they're recycling scenes. Mike putting the owl ring on the table. Doctor Amps duplicate broadcast. Later, we get James Hurley singing the song from the original series, and and you know she's watching this thing over and over and over, and and you wonder whether the comment is you know we're all Sarah Palmer watching this same thing over and over and over again, and and it just makes me think sometimes. David Lynch, everything he's ever done has just been David Lynch thumbing his nose at every other person who's not David Lynch. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's interesting, Kyle, because it, David Lynch seems, you know, he's always said that if he just could take a movie project, projector and connect it to his brain, that's what yeah. he's trying to do in all of his films. Right. And, you know, there's probably something about the nature of human existence where when you get that deep into someone's mind, it's always going to be weird and strange and unnatural to every other person other than and I, the subject. I can't remember who said this too, but yeah, uh, something I read a few weeks ago I was thinking about, and I feel like it was one of Lynch's ex-wives, ex-girlfriends, uh, maybe Isabella Rossellini, uh, but they were, they were talking about how Lynch, you know, when he was kind of at the height of, I guess, sort of his public notoriety, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties, and was appearing regularly on, you know, the cover of time magazine and late night talk shows. A lot was made of the routines that he governed his life by, you know, going to big Bob's big boy, you know, every, every day uh, at the same time, having the same thing, you know, his kind of standard uniform of wearing right. the same clothes. But one of his, like I said, former romantic partners said that he does this and makes sort of the day to day, uh, you know, routine of his life very simple so that he can live in his brain and live in his kind of visions, you know. And so I thought that was uh, interesting as well, especially in this kind of uh, scene about routines and repetition, uh, perhaps going in a more negative way than the way Lynch organizes his life. Yeah. All right. So our next scene takes us to the place wherever it is where Audrey seems to be, and something is really, really wrong. Um, Audrey is in what appears to be another room of the same house where she appeared uh, in the last episode where a Charlie uh, is. 
Audrey doesn't know really who she is or where she is. Charlie tells her that she's supposed to go to the roadhouse and find Billy, uh, but she feels like she's somewhere else and somebody else. And Charlie's pretty dismissive about this whole thing, uh, says it's just existentialism 101. Uh, and But Audrey really doesn't seem to know where the roadhouse is or how far away it is. And Charlie makes a comment that he thinks that he'd think that she was on drugs if he didn't know better. Then he says something really, what I thought was really ominous. Now are you going to stop playing games or do I have to end your story too? What the hell does that mean? Right. Uh, for, for Charlie to end Audrey's story. Uh, but, but Audrey responds, you know, initially combatively. What story is that, Charlie? Is that the story of the little girl who lived down the lane? And then she, you know, she starts to break down a little bit. And she says that she wants to stay, but she also wants to go and says, which will it be, Charlie? And, you know, Charlie says something about this is what you wanted to do. And Charlie says, which one would you be? Charlie, help me. And then she says, it's like Ghostwood here. And then she starts crying. So, yeah, it's unclear. Is Charlie her therapist? Uh, Is she having some sort of hallucination? Is she in a coma dreaming all of this? Uh, She clearly is stuck someplace, somewhere, but we don't know the details. Yeah, and I I buy that latter theory, Jr. Uh, Yvette Giles at the Twenty Five Years Later site uh, put forth the theory last week that Audrey's been comatose since the bank explosion, and that her scenes are what she's dreaming. Uh, and I think that makes sense. I mean, we see Audrey's wearing the same clothes; she's asking the same question, even though time appears to have passed. Charlie has moved. She mentions Ghostwood, which obviously was on her mind when she went into the bank for the Occupy Twin Peaks movement. She doesn't know where the roadhouse is. She doesn't feel like herself, doesn't know who she is. And she says at the end that she wants to go, i.e. to emerge from her coma, but she also wants to stay, that is, in order to remain safe in her dream state. So I I, I am more convinced that Yvette's theory is right and Audrey's scenes are what she's dreaming while she's in a coma. Yeah. And to kind of tie along with that, I was interested in, uh, you know, her response to that line you just mentioned, you know, JR, uh, you know, are you going to stop playing games so I have to end your story too? And then Audrey says, what story is that? Charlie, is that the story of the little girl who lived down the lane? Um, <clears throat> the little girl who lives down the lane uh, is a 1976 film starring Jodie Foster and Martin Sheen. Uh, and in this film, there's a little girl named Wren, played by Foster, and she lives with her father, who's a poet, in this big, you know, mansion, kind of Victor- this big book-filled Victorian mansion outside of a um, small town. Uh, her father dies, and then he kind of makes an arrangement with his daughter uh, and leaves her money so that she can basically, you know, get to the age of 18 and just pretend that her father's way that she can maintain her independence, avoid having an unwanted guardian. Uh, she's kind of helped out in this with this weird character who's like an aspiring magician, this local boy next door who imitates her father at one point. She's subject to the attentions of a rich pedophile who's played by Martin Sheen and just in general faces this kind of resentment, coldness, resistance to her independence um, on the part of the small town in New England that she lives near. Um, And, you know, if uh, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I was if Audrey is in this kind of arrested development coma, you know, state stuck at the age of 18 uh, when the bank exploded at the end of season two, this maybe is the type of story that Audrey 
as we know or might identify with as she tries to make her way back to the land of consciousness, adulthood, you know. Uh, and this might be her version of the, uh, Charlie's house, uh, this cold, chilly, book-filled mansion uh, that Audrey finds herself in, um, you know, might be uh, similar to the one that Foster's character of Ren lived in all alone and uh, the little girl who lives down the lane. And interestingly enough, I think the movie ends with uh, Foster poisoning creepy Sheen, uh, Charlie Sheen, at the end of, of the movie. So we also had a story that involves poison. Yeah, more poison. Right. <laughs> well, we're not done with the episode yet, but we move from here to the roadhouse where we get the second pinecone microphone introduction. The first was of, yeah. was of the Nine Inch Nails. This time, it's uh, the ultimate troll. <laughs> James Hurley is playing just you. Um, the the internet went crazy about this because apparently many fans of Twin Peaks really hate this scene when it first happened in season two. Oh, I, I, I thought dude. it was fine, and it, but man, yeah. so many people were upset about it. And you know, kudos to you, David Lynch. I'm glad you made all those people angry uh, with, with this scene yeah. of James playing the song. Um, there's a woman crying in a booth and happy. She's really excited and happy. She's crying as she listens to, to the song. She's got the number 7663 tattooed on her arm inexplicably. Uh, this woman is named Renee. We saw her at the end of part two. She was sitting at a booth with Shelly and two other ladies. She's the one that observed everybody like Stephen uh, when – Shelley expressed some concerns about him. So we do know that she's a poor judge of character. Um, in that episode, James was uh, kind of um, shyly or bashfully checking her out. Uh, so that, that that's the answer about who that crying woman is. Um, so, you know, I think James, he's a solid performer. He can get up there on stage. Uh, you know, he's sensitive, but he's not, uh, he has the strength to get up and sing the song about uh, the, woman he left and the woman that was brutally murdered um and uh yeah he, he maybe he's cool now i'm I'm not sure uh but i do wonder where they keep his helium tank <laughs> yeah i i still don't think james is cool but having him sing the song from the original series at the roadhouse definitely was particularly with Fodana and airsats maddie there although i i don't think jr i would classify maddie as the woman who was brutally murdered i think maddie technically qualifies as the other woman who was brutally murdered. I think Laura deserves that title. Uh, but what J- what James deserved was a pinecone introduction, and he deserved to be introduced as the James Hurley because he is the fourth returning Robin of season three, showing yet again that the threes are turning into fours. Love this scene. Absolutely love it. I loved it too, and I, I found it uh, hilarious uh, and yeah, I, I you know I, I made the the I made the controversial defense of, of James Hurley way back when maybe in, in episode one or two. Um, I was glad to see him have his moment um, on the stage, and I was also kind of thinking, you know, James seems to be at least based on this performance more comfortable with himself, uh, kind of more grounded than a lot of the other older char- you know characters from the original Twin Peaks we've seen this season except maybe for Bobby Briggs um you know I kind of I'm talking of you know the generation I guess of of you know Bobby and James maybe their kind of encounters with tragedy and their encounters love for Laura helped them mature um but then I was also kind of this scene takes place uh 
originally before maybe one of the most disturbing appearances of Bob in all the entire run of, of Twin Peaks. Uh, they're singing this song. I think Maddie uh, or Donna see, thinks James is singing You know, to Maddie. She runs out. James runs to comfort her. And then out of nowhere, just in the Hayward living room, Bob appears out of the kitchen and makes this terrifying run straight for the camera. Uh, and really, like I said, in all the kind of appearances of Bob, this for me was one of the most disturbing and horrifying moments. So there was this kind of ominous sense to it in the same way that I, you know, in, a, in an ostensibly amusing, fun scene, uh, like the spotlight in the, the, on Sunny Jim's gym set, this callback to the original run of Twin Peaks made me a little concerned. Um, and you could also perhaps read the scene as uncomfortable nostalgia, obsession with the past, especially in the form of, uh, I like what you call them, faux Donna and Ersatz Maddie, these brunette doppelganger backup singers, these kind of, uh, you know, sad versions of, of Maddie and Donna. But it does seem like, uh, you know, uh, Renee, uh, at the very least, I think that's her name. She likes it. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, it, I, I, I love seeing James appear again. But not all the Hurleys are happy. That's right. That's right. But two out of three. Two out of three ain't bad. Yeah. So we're used to seeing the credits roll as the band plays on at the Roadhouse, but not in this episode. We go to Big Ed's gas farm uh, where Big Ed is mournfully eating some to-go soup from the double R, looking out the window. We hear the sounds of cars. Uh, I kept waiting for, like, Hutch to pull up or something. Uh but he didn't. Uh, instead, there appears to be some glitchiness in his reflection on the window. I couldn't see it when I tried to watch it, but I know people are going crazy about it on the internet. Then he lights up a piece of paper on on fire with a match. I don't know if it was like part of a matchbook or a folded piece of paper, uh, but it definitely isn't good. It certainly reminds me of uh, the man at the cabin that used to light matches uh, for at young Leland Palmer. And I was also reminded of what Big Ed had said at the double R when he asked Bobby Briggs to join he and Norma. He's like, it's no good eating alone. And then, of course, we end with this long scene of him eating what might be Garmin Bozia soup all alone uh, in, in, his, in his gas farm. Yeah, but yeah, the, the, the glitch, I guess, in terms of his reflection, I had to watch it several times uh, to see it after having read about it. Uh, but it, it looks like... You know, the first shot of Big Ed, he puts his soup down, and then the next shot, you go to his uh, reflection, and the reflection is, like, still holding the soup. It's what would have happened, like, two or three seconds beforehand, and there's also some glitchiness with one of the passing cars. But, yeah, I had to look really hard several times to see uh, what was going on there. But, yeah, there is there is something there, like a slight delay in what his reflection is doing uh, versus what's happening in what is so-called reality. Uh, I should also <laughs> right. We should also mention that uh, one of the freaky things that happened Sunday night is that Sky TV in Germany apparently mistakenly broadcast episode fourteen or part fourteen uh, instead of part thirteen. We I actually understand now what was happening. Ken Walzak was was traveling in the Alsace Lorraine. Uh, he snuck across the border, uh, and as part of his actions in a bootlegging ring, uh, was able to uh, allow for uh, these uh, this mistaken broadcast to take place um, as as part of an international uh, copyright infringement uh, 
sort of a gang or conspiracy. Uh, this is this is what I'm hearing from my connections in Buenos Aires. Yeah, and one one other thing no one's noted is that there was a rerun of Seventh Heaven that aired in Belgium uh, that Ken uh, pirated in the air, episodes 15 through 18 actually aired. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> so, um, Ken, your location has been reported to Interpol. Uh, they're closing in on you. You cannot hide. And and all sauce stays pretty calm, but Lorraine is a worrier. <laughs> While we're giving uh, Ken a hard time, I just, you know, Ken has been concerned about things not being wrapped up. And obviously, we have plenty of questions. We had new ones raised in this episode from everything from who was the guard who gave Royal Ray the owl ring all the way up to, uh, you know, what uh, what Charlie meant by ending Audrey's story. But, you know, things are starting to come together here. I mean, we're getting a clearer idea of the nature of the conspiracy involving Duncan Todd and Tony and the police. We now know where the farm is. It's in Western Montana. We're getting a better sense of the connections between Ray and Jeffries and Murphy and the Lodge. Uh, we got a pretty clear idea, I think, that Doppel Cooper had Bob removed from him. The owl ring suggests that uh, the plan Jeffries had is to send Mr. C to the Black Lodge so Jeffries can be with Bob again. You know, Dougie's fingerprints, we now have confirmed they line up with the Goodales and Doppel Coopers. And so I, I think we're starting to see all this stuff converging in what didn't feel like a terribly plot-heavy episode compared to some other ones, um, we saw a lot of things really start to begin being pieced together. And and so I think, you know, with all due respect to our dear friend Ken, assuming that he actually exists uh, and, and has appeared on this podcast like I think he has, um, you know, I think uh, Lynch's message for the episode was aimed straight at him. And I think he was saying, you know, Ken Walzak can bite me in the ball sack uh, because he's telling him we're gonna we're gonna wrap this thing up uh, and and it's gonna it's gonna make sense and and of course my reference there was to Honoré de Balzac, the French novelist. Right. Uh, I hope you didn't misinterpret that. Right? Who who died from drinking too much coffee? It's, I don't know if you knew that. Wow! There yeah, you go. He, did. he, he drank so See, much it coffee all comes that he died in the at, at an early age. End episode done. Yeah. Okay, guys. See you later. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Good night. See ya.